Falsha, 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 Akharjagil. Welcome to episode 58 of the Rebel Matters podcast. I'm going to set the scene for you here so you know, you know what the crack is, but it's Friday evening down here in Cork. It is lashing rain outside. I was just looking out at the traffic. It's half past five and there's a big line of traffic of people trying to get home. And I'm sitting in the room here, which is filled up with incense. The lights are turned down low. I've been listening back to the chats that I had with this week's guest on the podcast, Steve Lolly, and I've also been listening to Krangbin, their track, which is called The, the Number Three, which is a class track and also got me thinking about another one of my favourite tracks at the moment, which is a track by Aphex Twin from their Selected Ambient Works album, Volume 2, and that track is also called Number Three. Funny enough, it's the third track on the album so if you want to go and hunt those two down and put your headphones on and kick back and relax then it's a good way to zone out for a while those two uh, number three tracks and also if you want to listen to that the uh, Aphex Twin track on YouTube it's called Rhubarb Rhubarb is the title of the track on YouTube and it's got a class wee video of a monkey just sitting in water and uh, it's a really nice video just to watch and uh, listen to and just kick back and chill out for a little while. Anyway, I think it's really going to enjoy this episode of the podcast. I think for me, it really sums up the reason why I started this podcast in the first place, which was just to be able to meet and connect with really interesting people and make new friends. And I want to just say to Steve for first of all agreeing to do this podcast but more importantly for inviting me to come up to the house that he shares with his wife Paula in South Armagh and bringing me into their house giving me such a warm welcome and then for just being so open and uh, friendly of doing this doing the podcast episode like we talked for hours this podcast episode itself is about an hour and a half long the conversation part of it which is one of the longest ones but we actually sat there and talked for about an hour before we hit record and then after we finished the episode we took to the back roads of South Armagh and Steve gave me a class wee tour of the area we went to see a ring fort that had a ferry tree in it we went to Tea Cullen, which is the place where um, Cullen was having a feast when Satanta trekked across the country to uh, go to um, to Cullen's feast and where he was attacked by Cullen's hound and Satanta drove a slitter down his throat, killed the hound and then assumed the name Coo Cullen. We were in the place that that actually happened and while we were driving there, we spotted something that I've never seen before in my life but a massive rainbow that was like so colourful and I could see both ends of the rainbow like you could see the start of the rainbow and then there was the bow and then there was the other side and I've never seen that before so we actually just jumped out of the car and just looked at that for a while and kind of appreciated the beauty of it then we went to Inneskeen where uh, Patrick Kavanagh is buried and where there's also a church there that Bram Baru was brought to after he was killed at the Battle of Clontarf and they were making their way back and they brought his body in there. And it's a really magical place. There's so much heritage and culture up there, both like historic and from like a folklore point of view and also uh, in more recent times as well. Like South Armagh is called the Banded Country for a reason and that reason being that there are people who are have never been afraid to stand up for themselves and they um, 
brought the fight to the British Army for sure. Around South Armagh, the only way that the British Army could travel whenever they were there was by helicopter because of the fact that the South Armagh Brigade were so deadly. And you can get a sense of the, the pride that people have in their uh, more recent history and also their more like uh, ancient history as well. So it was great to be up there. I actually recorded this episode the day after Kneecap played in the academy in Dublin. I rented a car for the weekend because I knew I was going to be doing a bit of driving around. Drove up to Dublin, went to the gig, had a great night afterwards in Wigwam, even though someone stole my jacket and my hat at the after party. So if that person is listening out there, then you're in fucking big trouble. But I hope you're enjoying my lovely hat and also my jacket. Um... But apart from that, it was a class night. The next day I got up and went around to the Bang Bang Cafe in Fibsborough about 9 o'clock in the morning. And Anya in the Bang Bang sorted me out with two good strong cups of coffee and a delicious breakfast. And then I hit the road up to South Armagh and had a great time uh, with Steve and with Paula also. Also, massive shout out to Charles and Andrew from TPM because they are the ones that hooked us up. Uh, myself and Steve and put us in, in touch with each other. I'm really glad that they did because I know that now, like, myself and Steve have kind of become friends now, like, and uh, same as with a lot of the podcast uh, guests that have been on so far. And it's a really nice way to connect with people. And at the end of the day, like, what's more important than just connecting with each other and getting to spend some, like, uh, sort of, uh, what would be the word? just spend some kind of intentional time with another person uh, speaking to each other and, and not being connected to the digital world for a while and in a way that kind of is maybe a good way to run into the conversation that we had together because I think that a lot of the importance of folklore is to do with getting back to our roots and taking the lessons from the stories that have gone by and that have been handed down from generation to generation and everything that goes along with that, it's just a, it's a really rich form of uh, handing down of knowledge and of customs, and something that like I suppose isn't maybe I think that is making a comeback now. Like, but we need to be careful to preserve it and also to respect it and give it its proper place because at the end of the day, like we're in Ireland here, like we have a massive history and a really rich history of passing information and customs down orally and it's important that we keep that which is another reason why I'm very grateful for Steve and other people who um, have sort of dedicated their lives to being storytellers and folklorists and preserving stories, writing new stories and uh, yeah, it's class so I've got a few more of these folklore episodes as well, I said I was going to do that uh, ages ago so you can look forward to them coming out and I know you're going to enjoy this one because I really enjoyed going up and recording it in the first place and I really enjoyed listening back to it as well especially on this rainy afternoon uh, where it's nice to be cooped up in a wee warm room with incense listening to some tunes and hearing Steve uh, talk about how he became a storyteller and recounting some of his stories and going a little bit deeper on some of the topics as well so we'll get stuck into it there now and just one more thing before we do is as usual there is a little bit of raw dial at the end of the episode so if you want to 
bit of a bedtime story. Just let the outro music play out and stay tuned. And I'll be reading a chapter or so from Roald Dahl's book, uh, Boy, Tales of Childhood. Of course, the Patreon account is still connected to this podcast. And if you want to become a patron of the Rebel Matters podcast, you can do that by going to rebelmatters.ie, where you can find all the rest of the episodes and also a link to the Patreon account. And you can you know, like sign up for making a monthly contribution if you want to, which really helps to cover the cost of making the episodes. You know, like traveling to places to meet people, doing all the production on it, and uh, even like the cost of getting the few bits of equip- equipment and stuff that are required to be able to keep on banging out the podcast uh, consistently at a high level. And yeah, listen back to the other episodes as well. If this is your first time tuning in to the Rebel Matters podcast, like this is the 50th episode. So there's a massively like diverse bunch of episodes that have come before this one. So feel free to go back and listen to them. And as always, like get in touch. If you have any comments or suggestions or anything like that there, then you can just like uh, hit me up on social media. Instagram is probably the best one. And if you feel like giving the podcast a review on iTunes, then uh, that'd be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, Cardigal, let's get stuck into the 58th episode of the Rebel Matters podcast with Steve Lally. about this kind of storytelling series and folklore series that I'm working on yes trying to come up with a nice way of opening the the episodes and I, I think the one thing that that's the one kind of question that springs to mind that I've always been really interested to ask people is what was it that inspired you to become a storyteller okay yeah well that's that's a good that's a good good, good way to get the ball rolling and my grandmother was a shanky from Galway the Wild West, or as, as my mother would say, the West is the best. <laughs> and probably that goes for Belfast too. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's definitely the Wild West anyway up there. But uh, yeah, when my grandmother, she was uh, yeah from the west of Ireland, a uh, Shanachie storyteller. And when I was a young fella, I mean, you're going way, way, way back now. We're going back to early 80s and stuff. And uh, when we used to go in, and stay with her, uh, I grew up in Kildare and we go, we go, every other maybe every other month or something to go down and see her and I loved it because you had Salt Hill and you had all the crack and plenty of ice cream and then granny stories you know so I used to sit in her knee at night and she'd just tell me stories about the banshee and the puka and and uh, changelings and, and scared the living shite out of me but uh, I loved it absolutely loved it and it just stayed with me and um, you know after she died uh, you know it was funny I, I uh, I was very young at the time when she died. I was only about nine or so when she died, but I was very, you know, it was funny. Like, uh, I mean, at that age, you don't really 
you know, there was other, uh, you know, older people in in the family that, and the, it it just didn't register with me. Whereas this, it did, and and I used to just, um, I just, I think about her stories and stuff, and that, and they would keep it alive. And then, and my father, Lord Emerson, he he used to get me books um, on on mythology and folklore and stuff, and and because he saw like that, you know, I had an interest in because I, I I'd be asking him about this stuff and and. Uh, and uh, that's really where, where th- that's what sowed the seed. It was my grandmother, and then my, my afterwards my dad. He he kind of he encouraged it because he saw Jesus might get him reading. Isn't that great? You know. Uh, so you know, uh, I remember Dad. Uh, one of the, the books that he got me was a beautiful book by a guy called. Um, uh, she had it here. This is it here. It's guy guy called James Stevens, and it's a. It's, it's called uh, um, Irish Fairy Tales and it's illustrated by a chap called Arthur Rackham who was probably in my, in my mind I would say the best uh, illustrator of Irish um, folk and fairy stories and stuff like that but it was uh, he, he would read these to me and, um, and, and you know it's just that stuff that, that's, that's some of his illustrations it's really. interesting that the, the illustrations play such an important role in like fairy tales and yeah. is that because we're such an oral tradition and that the like writing stories out has yes. only been a recent really development in Irish folklore yes. whereas imagery has probably been around for longer than I- imagery is very important um, you know uh, even even in Irish culture imagery is terribly important even religion is always a bloody sacred heart on the wall or something you know what I mean it's it's all about imagery and symbolism and uh, you know in, in, in my own books I've four books now on Irish folklore and I illustrate them all myself, you know, and, and the illustrations to me are just as important and sometimes even more important depending on, because it's the illustration that attracts the person to the book. A person isn't, isn't attracted to the book by a page full of words. <laughs> you know, if they see a nice illustration or something that catches their interest, that gets them reading. And the other thing I find with <clears throat> some of the, the, the folklore and fairy, fairy, fairy story books that I have, uh, is that you know when you're telling a story to someone you have a certain imagery inside your head and then you tell the story to them they have a certain imagery inside their head might not be the same mm-hmm. but then when you see the drawing or whatever in the book you're like, oh that's what that's what this person sees yes. when they're telling this story well, and it kind of puts things into a little bit of a context or something absolutely well I have a this is, this is a a copy of the latest one that we've written um, oh. myself and my wife Paula Irish Gothic and I'll just show you this um this one here, this first one you showed me is from 1924. Yeah, it's very old. Um, I'll just show you, this is the, the illustration of the Banshee. So the idea is that you don't really know what she looks like, but you know you don't go near. That's good, making the hair on my arm stand up watching that now, like the back of my neck is standing up. You know why? I think it's because, you remember that movie Darby O'Gill and the Little People? Yes. The Banshee and that... Quite similar, like you could yeah. kind of see through her. Yes. You weren't really sure was it really a woman, or but you could hear no. she was crying, and you're yeah. like, I used to scare the shit out of me when I was a kid. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I mean, so that's what I, I did, and with, with, with to sort of treat these particular ones because, <clears throat> you know, the she the, the she. I mean, and then I did like like that's the puka horse now, yeah. um, which is obviously a horse, but <clears throat> I sort of tried to give it a kind of a uh, an element of almost a human. There's a human element as well there, yeah. you know. Um, and then, then but, the fear got in but whenever that. I whenever I did the actual the the, the, the good folk the fairy folk um, let me see how so you can I, 
trying to find. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not the one. There's one here. Sorry, uh, I just. This is the sort of thing. I, this, we we had uh, terrible trouble writing this book. Um, both of us got very sick and stuff, and sort of weird stuff was happening, like mad, like proper like poltergeist, you know, paranormal activity type of thing. <coughs> Polly had terrible, terrible nightmares. Um, you know, the, like this, this the fairies there now. That's that's. Yeah, <clears throat> you don't know what they look like, and you know, in a lot of stories about the the Shida, the good folk, they're described as having indescribable faces. Uh, some people have described them as being so terrifying that to describe them would you just it would drive you mad, you know. And uh, you know, and that's the thing that we were trying to get across in this book that the, the Shia, first of all, they're not called fairies. Fairies is an English word; doesn't exist in Irish. Uh, it's an anglicisation of the, the Shida, the she. Um, of course, Banshee means woman of the fairies. And as I say to the children, now, boys and girls, when you think about the Banshee, do you think about Tinkerbell? And they go, no, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, in this book, we tried to get that across, that the, the, the Shida are actually descended from gods. They were the two of the Don. And the, the problem was that... <clears throat> When Christianity came in, you know, they, they, they were the gods, they were the, that's who the people worshipped, and they were all powerful. When Christianity came in, <clears throat> their power started to decrease. One of their great leaders was Lou, Lou of the Silver Arm, which County Lowell is named after. Uh, Lou actually got demoted uh, because he was no longer a god, and he became a cobbler, and he changed his name to uh, Lou the Leprechaun, which eventually became the Leprechaun. So it's kind of, it just shows you how a powerful god that defeated the Fomorian became a feckin' leprechaun, you know? And that's sort of what happened in Irish folklore, that it got, it got kind of watered down and stuff like that. Another example of it was the, the, the Banfasas. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Banfasas, the wise women. And they knew all the herbs and the cures and stuff. Now, they were also known as fairy doctors. But again, <clears throat> when, you know, the church and stuff got involved and, and all that stuff, society got involved... These women were, were feared, and uh, A, because they were women, B, because they knew what they were doing, and C, because what they did actually bloody worked. Because the doctors at the time, if you had a sore leg, they just cut it off. These women would cure it for you. So eventually the Banfasses uh, became known as Kayaks, which is basically a witch. And you know what happened to witches back in the old days. So the same thing kind of happened to the fairies, um, that they were sort of dumbed down a bit or, or made to be feared but not in a, in a healthy way yes it's it's wise to fear them but it's also more important to respect them you know and you know you have to remember that we come from a culture a culture not a people a culture that goes back thousands of years you know so you know you know i, I was in a boxing club years ago and i remember seamus the boy he says right you're all descended from kings he'd say to us you know and don't you know don't forget that and you know, and I think, I think you know, sadly, you know, uh, Irish culture is kind of sold out in that sense. In, in, uh, when it comes to that sort of like, you know, the carols, gift shops and stuff like that. And the, the fact of the matter is that <clears throat> it's, 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 it's such an important and a rich culture, the, 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 the stories of the Shida, the good folk. What people don't realise is that things like Lord of the Rings, uh, Game of Thrones, even Star Wars was influenced by these stories, you know? Um, but typical, the Irish people don't take credit for it, but it's the old story, these other people come in and take credit for stuff that they rearranged for themselves. 
And so we, we, we just wanted to try and explain that, that, that these stories are ours. They're from this country. They're thousands of years old, some of them. Uh, they're handing down word of mouth, the old tradition. Uh, it was only really in the kind of 1700s uh, with people like, um, 1700s, early 1800s thereabouts, you had people like William Carleton and Patrick Kennedy, and then later on you had uh, William Butter Yeats and Lady Gregory and, of course, Douglas Hyde and blah, 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 blah. They were all academics, you know, and a lot of them were kind of like West Brits, I suppose, you know. And, and, and they, they kind of took this, which was great, but they made it, they, they, they took, the difference between a story and an, an academic kind of thing is, an, academia is, is the same thing, but you just take the crack out of it, you know. And that's what they did. I mean, I, I, if you ever read it, I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, I love, I love Yeats, I think I love his poetry and stuff. But some of the stuff is very heavy going, especially Lady Gregory and stuff like that. And then it wasn't until yeah, things started really... Uh, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. No, keep going, because it's really interesting. <laughs> There's so many things that I'm just kind of trying to remember to ask you about again. But I've read some of the... Um, I've read some of the the stories that, that have been written down and edited by Lady Gregory and mm. by Yates as well. I actually visited Cool Park oh, really? recently, which wow. was amazing just to walk around that and see. Cool. But then I, I was also speaking to um, a storyteller from Cork recently, Maria Gillen, and, you know, she... We started a storytelling mm. um, night yeah. down at Cork recently on, on the full moon. Oh. And, uh, you know... And like anything to get something to get going, like there had to be a few of us who were going to say, right, we definitely have to have some stories ready to tell here. Like, and we're not like storytellers by really any stretch of the imagination yes. as much as the next person. So we were like, right, okay, I'll try and learn this story off by heart from this book, and then at least I'll have something to bring to the table, and somebody else would do the same. And Marie was saying, you know, that's good, but storytelling is not about learning stories off by heart. Mm. And I guess that kind of goes back to the thing of the written down stories only being a recent thing. Yes. And probably ties in with the academic side of it where there, you know, in a way I can see that the stories that have been written down over the last couple of hundred years is a good way of preserving it. But in reality, like the, the true storytelling, when I think of it in my head, is like in a cottage on the side of a mountain around the fireplace when everyone's huddled around. Do you know what it's like? It's like the difference between going and seeing the real band and a cover band. That's basically what it is. The old stories were the real thing. They were the real, that was authentic. You know, you have to remember as well, like if one kid said to me once, like when I was telling stories in school, and he said, oh, you know, they're good, but there's no special effects. And I said, ah, yeah, but you know, you, tr- you put yourself 200 years ago in a cottage in the middle of nowhere where there's no electricity and it's dark and you have to walk home and you have to hear stories about the banshee and you start hearing things in the in the hedges. Believe me, the special effects aren't long coming. You know. I remember watching. I remember hearing stories about the banshee, and after watching Darby O'Gillan around that time, and then the next thing you'd be lying in bed and you just hear, "Oh, you're winning!" Oh, shit, that's the banshee. It's the banshee. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But but see, the thing is, uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the the thing about the old tradition as well is 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 you know, people, the majority of people who were telling these stories couldn't read or write. And when they did speak, it was it was Oscailga. So what happened was uh, years later, when these stories were being recorded and written down, the ones that were recorded, the majority of them couldn't speak Irish, so they had to be translated into English. Now, as you as you well know, Irish is a fantastic language. It's it's a bit like uh, it's like poetry. Do you know, you can like for example, 
like a, you know, in English you say he ran very fast, but now you say you know Rishi or Nosnagui he ran as fast as the wind. You know that's the difference. It's it just takes it up another level. Do you know what I mean? And when these stories were written down, they were translated into English, which basically diluted them to a certain extent linguistically. Um, and the to really get that real sense of an authentic folk story was was to hear it from a storyteller with the accent, with a turn of phrase, you know. In the other thing as well, right, in, in, in Irish folklore, the fairies all speak Irish. Um, the Shira, because they're an ancient race. They don't, <coughs> they, they, they don't recognize English as a language. That's not, you know, it's that's just doesn't exist as far as they're concerned. Um, so, like, you know, to, the other thing is, like, you know, when you're telling um, a, a story uh, about the Shia or something, you know, it's, um, I, I, I have a couple of folk loss scale, I don't, I'm not fluent, but I have a few other words, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to, I'm going to have to go, I, I, I keep saying this, but I really want to go back and learn it properly, because to really give the stories justice, um, when the when the fairies are 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 speaking it, it, it authentically, it's it's an Irish, you know. So, you know, but the thing is, like, that's all well and good. But the problem is, I mean, it's like I watched a, a thing about uh, your is, is your brother's group, and he kept yeah, yep. and he was talking about like the Irish language and stuff, and and he was saying there's no point in even even attempting doing this unless you're fluent in it. Do you know what I mean? Because it's it's you know, and that's sort of what happened with the stories like these people weren't fluent in Irish they, you know whatever so they, they had no choice but to to, to translate it and, and into this other into this language and stuff and if you think about it like um, that that would have taken away from the the, 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 the the sort of the what's the word I'm looking for the potency the potency of the language you know the way it was spoken as well as that if you think about it like when these stories were told they were all told in Irish you know um, and you know, it, 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 so so when these were being recorded by book, uh, it just it, it just didn't seem to have the same strength. So what I what I do as a storyteller is I travel around. I, I, I talk to fellas living in mountains, brewing their own pochine, uh probably haven't seen a human being in fifteen years. You know, but they're the boys you go and talk to, not the academics. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing you're mentioning there about the. The arrival of Christianity mm-hmm. in the Ireland and how that affected oh, it's messed the, the, whole thing up. the passing on of the stories, and, and in a way, the way that you described it there is, you know, uh, that's thinking back. That's how I've heard it described before. In a way that the, the Christianity came to try and tried to kind of separate us from our more sort of pagan oriented mm-hmm. type of culture and tried to, I guess, in a way, it's nearly, like a, it's nearly like a form of colonialism when you try and break down Absolutely. the native culture or the indigenous sort of, um, the indigenous way of life and make it so that it seems quite barbarous or something like that, mm-hmm. or and then trying to bring your own stuff in, That's right. which in a way is when you look at like the likes of Halloween, where we've kind of kept some of that sort of pagan sort of... But sure, Halloween was invented in Ireland. Yeah. Night of the Sound. You know, it's 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 an Irish. It's 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 roots are in in Ireland. I mean, um, it's actually very. It's actually quite interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with the horror film Halloween. Um, the the third one, which is it's a bit dodgy as a film, but it's they actually go into where Halloween originated in Ireland, which is quite interesting. You know, it's like so Michael Myers wanted to come from Ireland. You know, but um, but you know, it's just I think um, you know when Christianity came, uh, it. it 
it happened in all cultures. The same thing happened in Norse culture. Um, same thing happened in, in in Greek culture. You know, all these all these wonderful uh, countries that had fantastic mythology and and um, and it was somehow religion came along and and, t- and changed it. Like when the early Christian monks came to Ireland, in all the monasteries they always have a shield and a gig. You know, which uh, was hark back to the pagan times. And that was to you know, there was there's lots of theories on what the shield in the gig was it pornography was it was it a warning was a fertility it or something fertility was it what but really what it was was it was to connect with the local people you know uh, and then years later when uh, a lot of the shield in the gigs were actually by the church were 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 uh, asked to be destroyed a friend of mine actually goes around finding shield in the gigs really? around <laughs> Ireland and and doing three D scanning on them ah. to try and. Record Brilliant. where it was found and what condition it was in, and ah. that kind of stuff. Um, the other thing, what you know, when I speak to like the storytellers and stuff like that, like it seems like, like even when we're talking here now, it feels like you have like a direct line to the <laughs> stuff that we were doing 4,000 years ago and the stories that we were telling. And I'm interested to find out look, what do you feel the importance of those stories is for today's society? I think those stories are incredibly important. I mean, you heard what the, my friend said there on, uh, earlier, Raymond, about how we're so trapped in, you know, having the big house and the car and the money and da 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 da, da and how we look and all this stuff and, you know, uh, X Factor and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, these stories are a celebration of basically a celebration of what it is to be alive, a celebration of, of, of the fact that, you know, that we and the earth are connected and, you know, and it's a, it's a celebration of um, uh, our, 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 our ability to um, escape from whatever persecution, whether it be physical, whether it be mental, whether it be political, whatever the case it might be, you know, these stories now will, 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 will just lift you away from that, take you away from that in a safe way, uh, not like drugs or booze or that. You know, it, it, it can take you out of that bit of misery without a hangover or developing an addiction. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, it's, um, you know, I just think that they're, you know, it's so important to uh, have a sense of self have a sense of place, have a sense of belonging. Because if you don't have that, it's very easy to be knocked over. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you have a strong sense of who you are, where you came from, who your ancestors were, why you're here, blah, blah, blah. It's very hard for someone to kind of say, you know, you don't belong here or, you know, who are you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say that because we're in right in the middle of bandit country here. Yeah. And... (laughs) In a way, what happened here going back the last couple of hundred years is is that the the Brits were here trying to break down the local culture so they could come in and put their own culture in place. Exactly. Which is what you're saying is that yeah. like it's so important that we have a hold of our own sense of purpose. Absolutely. And is there a hand down of wisdom from generation to generation involved in storytelling like this? Oh, oh, very much so. Very, very much so. I mean, it's it's a it was a wisdom of um, you know, it's 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 sort of like. Yeah, it's a wisdom of, um, you know, what, first of all, the consequences of, um, you know, 
allowing something to come in that, uh, and, 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 and take away what you have and stuff like that. Now, you kind of go, what? What on earth is he talking about? What's that kind of... Well, you, there's a book, one of the earliest books uh, of, of uh, Irish folklore stories, mythology, is the Book of Invasions. That says it all, doesn't it? And the Book of Invasions... Because the two of the Don, the, 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 the Shida, were believed to be the original ruling race of Ireland. And then you had the Fomorian, the Furbullock, and eventually the Gael or the Celts, and it was supposedly them that, that... They didn't defeat each other. The story was that they were actually on a level playing ground. And they came to a, they had to come to a sort of a, an agreement. <laughs> there we go, it's, it's all very relative. Uh, so that they could basically share the earth together. But the Gael were a bit, were cute. And they said, listen, we'll have everything above the earth and you can have everything below the earth. And the Shida live below the earth. And that's why the fairy trees and stuff like that are sacred because that's their watchtowers and stuff like that and the fairy mounds and stuff. But of course the Shida realised afterwards, the fuckers tricked us, you know? We fucking own this place. And now we're living underneath the ground and they've got all the good stuff up above. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And uh, that's why the fairies, the, the Shida, the, the good folk, whatever you want to call them, that's why they have to, that's why people are afraid of them because they are, they are very embittered by what happens to them. And they're like, you know, we were here first and you fucked us over. And they basically, you know, if you if you mess with them, they will punish you, like, you know. And uh, you know, there's there's um there's wisdom in that, like, you know. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what happens. That's what happens if you if you take away someone's identity, if you take away someone's freedom, if you take away someone's right, just right to feckin' live, you're asking for trouble. It's like the comic cycle, <laughs> yeah, in a way. yeah, and with the. With the Shada, like, there's the standing stones mm-hmm. and the trees. That's right. And still today, people are yeah. not going to touch them. No. And there are probably some stories of people who did touch them. Well, I, I just, there's, there's, there's loads of stories. I mean, fairy trees is a big one. That's that's a big one um, because they, they grow, tend to grow. Are, there's lots of names from the crown, the she-oak, the lone bush, the hawthorn, the white thorn. Lots of names from them. But um, it's a big taboo to cut one of them down. And there's been, uh, we, myself and Paula, we were collecting the, the stories for our Irish Gothic. We, you know, we, we heard lots of terrible stories about people who, you know, the fairy trees cut down their land. There was like serious accidents. There was even suicides. There was infocides. There was just horrendous stuff. I mean, horrendous stuff happened. And, uh, you know, again, it's like, um, you know, a, what what these stories do and what this is just just to remind her that you know what do you know what folks you're only here for a short time and these boys were here long before you and they'll be here long before after you're gone so treat them with a bit of respect all right <laughs> you mentioned that you both got sick when you were writing that book do you think that that has a connection oh geez yeah definitely i mean they they tested us they definitely tested us uh we we thought we we we, we thought um we were scared like we were thinking are we are we, are we are we open up some sort of portal or something? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> to like this other realm, you know, um, like you know, like the film Poltergeist, you know, to the television. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, no, because it was it was it was quite it was quite uh, scary, Anna, because um, I got incredibly sick. I mean, really sick. I had to go to the hospital. 
Paula was getting terrible nightmares. Uh, all we had the entire book on the hard drive on the computer. I'm not joking you to write the whole oh gee now I had some stuff from the laptop and also but everything was gone from that. Um we took photographs on a camera uh of you know various um sites and stuff like that. The camera was destroyed. Uh it was dropped on the road and the car looked just it was just it was almost like as soon as we finished taking them, I dropped the bloody camera and the car went and smashed into pieces. You know, I mean it was like uh Loads of stuff. Um, you know, there was... Um, I'm trying to think of other things that happened. Like, yeah, there was, there was a lot of stuff uh, where, we, you know, when we were interviewing people, that people were afraid. They didn't want to talk about it. Uh, you know, the reason why they're called the good folk or, or the gentle folk is because it's believed they are always listening. So you have to talk about them respectfully, you know? Um, the great folklorist and uh, storyteller Eddie Lennon, who I interviewed for this book as well, um, you know, he, he calls them the other crowd, or the boys, you know. Don't mess with the boys. Mess with the boys, they mess with you. They're going to win. <laughs> you know? I mean, you were going around collecting the stories and talking to people um, about the boys there, and I, <laughs> I'm kind of worried my car's going to be gone before <laughs> conversation <laughs> uh, that's it were, were there were there active sort of superstitions that people were still carrying out around their houses or around children or yeah, things like that very, very 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 much so very much so um, yeah there's a guy called Pat Noon I don't know if you've ever heard of him before you have to talk to Pat Pat is great Pat lives in Ballinasloe County Galway he's a farmer and Pat owns a fairy field and uh, funny, it was Stephen McCollum from the Poxmen sent me a link to uh, Pat's, uh, some documentary that was made about Pat, Pat Noon. And Pat's story is in it. Uh, actually, I must get you a copy of the book oh, before yeah. you go. Thank you. But Pat, Pat is, he's the, uh, the Galway story in it. And, uh, oh, Jamie Mack, like, I mean, Pat, Pat, take, talk about carrying on traditions and all. I mean, he's got all, like, you ever see the film The Wicker Man? Yeah. He's got all the herbs and stuff hanging up inside in the house and everything. He's a healer as well, and he heals you with this copper wire and all the hoop that he puts, like a hula hoop, and he puts it up and down like that over you and takes all the negative energy away and all this kind of carry on. But he's a firm believer in the good folk. Now, he's actually an example of someone who um, knows... He, he, his, respect, his, his respect for the Shida is, 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 is amazing, and, and, and it's really interesting to see how his respect for the Shia and how he totally chooses to live in harmony with them. Now he's a farmer he has, he's got lots of land but he will not touch the fairy field the fairy field's massive, he won't plough it, he won't do anything to it, he won't cut those trees down, whatever, blah 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 um, but yet uh, what's happened with Pat like he, he, he he's he, he, RT he found about him, went did a wee documentary on, as a result now people come from all over the world, busloads, to come and see Pat's fairy field. Now, you're good to the boys, they're good to you. Do you know what I mean? But you mess with them, you're a goner. <laughs> so then, how does that relate to the kids? So what happened, so, so, so my relation to this was, I was, I was absolutely terrified, so I phoned Pat. I said, Pat, I think they're trying to kill us. <laughs> he was like, ah, no. I, I, you know, he was like, ah, no, no. He says, he says, he says, he says, they're just testing you. They're 
are just testing you. Just to see. You see, they want to see if you're willing to, willing, willing to go. They want people to know their story, he told us. They want people to know about them, but they want the right people doing it. They don't want you doing a half-assed job. If you're going to do it, do it right. And they're going to give you a few tests and put a few obstacles on your way and, and stuff like that, you know. And uh, I was like, really? And he goes, he goes listen, he says, I, I wouldn't put you wrong. I wouldn't put you wrong at all, he says. And, and you know, and it was, it was a real, um, it, was a, it was a real sort of sense of relief and stuff. And, and uh, you know, so what, what, what we did was, um, you know, after speaking to Pat and stuff, I mean, it's it's uh, it's tradition to leave uh, milk, butter, stuff like that for the fairies, you know. So we went. There's a fairy tree not from far from here, and we went and we tied some rags onto it, and we just said, "Listen, um, you know, I hope you don't mind us telling our stories, but uh, we really appreciate it if you allow us because we think they're very good." And and it was it was a bit like anyone saw us; they would have thought these boys need locked up, you know. But we did, and everything stopped after that. So I don't know. You yes. tell me. <laughs> and in Ireland, like we're we're a rural country, and for a long time, an, agri- an agricultural country, mm-hmm. and we're very connected to the land. Oh, very much like, so. How much of the tradition of storytelling and the the lessons behind the storytelling of the many thousands of years of storytelling that we have now are kind of um, I guess there to teach us about the land and to teach us in a way like if you even like a hundred years ago if you're living somewhere and you you don't know you're not familiar with your surroundings or you're walking in the mm. wrong place and you break your ankle like you're going that's it it's not you're not going to go to the hospital like you're going to have to like a broken leg back then could mean the end of you like yeah, so absolutely. how much of those stories stories are built around teaching each other and hand over knowledge of the landscape and stuff. To huge, a huge amount of them. Funny, there's one that uh, you, there's a story from County Offaly, a great storyteller from County Offaly. I was talking to um, Frank Bergen, smashing guy. Um, he told me a beautiful story about people who uh, who are stealing um, stealing uh, holly or not uh, hazel rods from a fairy mound to make baskets, and they all became cripples or something. You know. And uh, what they did was they had to go back to the mound and throw the baskets onto the mound and return everything they took. And then they, they were able to walk normally. Regain the part of their legs. Regain the part of their legs. But I mean, but you look what it looks happening in the world today. I mean, look, look at poor old Greta telling us what we're doing to the world, you know, like with the, the environment and everything. You know, these stories, uh, it's very much about respecting the land, about like not, you know, if you, you, like, like the American Indians, you know, if you're going to... You, take something from the land, you know, sort of be grateful for it and use it. Don't just waste it, you know. Um, don't just do it for, for pleasure, you know. Or, or, you know, everything everything has a function. Everything, basically what the stories are about is if, if, if people if people just weren't so feckin' greedy or, you know, the reason why the land has been so tortured nowadays, the environment, is because people's greed for wealth and, and, and profit and you know, uh, to have things, you know. Uh, and that's why, you know, rainforests have been destroyed now because they need, need it for X, Y, and Z to produce whatever. Um, and the same's happening in this country, you know, the, the motorways being ploughed through places. I remember as a child were beautiful places and now they're just fucking, uh, you know, concrete jungles now, you know. Yeah, one of the last ones actually shows just 
the motorway that was that's right just, they just put through a mountain bit here yeah, yeah I remember that was being built through a mountain that was around 2004 <laughs> or something that's like right that. that's right so yeah no the, the stories are very very much about that um, and you know that I mean it was very interesting like you know it was even recorded like being with, I know like William Carlton and people like that that would record folklore from a long time ago and they were going around to the to the ordinary people, you know, this was before the famine and stuff like that, and they were just ta- saying how healthy they were and stuff like that. The ordinary folk, the, 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 the country folk, but a lot of the wealthier people suffered from gout and stuff like that because of the, the bad diets they were on and, and no fresh fruit or vegetables. Everything was, you know, meat and bread, you know. So they, and all their teeth were gone and stuff, you know. And, you know... And they also believe that the famine was caused by the fairies. And uh, funny enough, they, there's one uh, belief that the famine was a reaction of the fairies uh, to what was happening to the land from foreign invaders. So they made the land so poisonous. Like they hit the self-destruct button. They hit the self and just to get to you know, as like okay, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, well, we're just gonna shut down. You know, so there's a theory about that as well. Um, you know, and it's in the book as well uh, about that. So yeah, the, the land, these stories, very, very, very much connected, very much about respecting, respecting your surroundings, respecting the people around you, um, just taking what you need, you know, not what you want, what you need, and uh, you know, and and sharing and looking after each other and stuff like that. And, and it's the same. In all the stories, you will find the same thing. You know, it's like if you, you know, if you just show them a bit of respect. There's a beautiful, beautiful story from County Monaghan in there about a guy who meets the king of the fairies and he brings him back to his kingdom. It's a beautiful story. Oh, it's so beautiful. <coughs> and uh, you know, it just it, it, it describes them riding across this lake on horses, but the, the lake is frozen and it sounds like glass underneath the feet of the horses. And it describes the the sky being full, filled with. Um, thousands and thousands of flying geese and it says that the sky was black like it was full of midges you know and and just all this stuff and eventually he gets him to the place and he and he he, he brings him to a feast now he, the guy doesn't eat because you know not to eat the, the food of the Shida otherwise you'll never leave the other thing is if you steal their gold you're in trouble as well so he didn't eat he, then he was put up in a room for the night the room was full of gold and jewels he didn't touch any of it and as a result, uh, the guy brought him back to his home and said, any time you need anything at all, you just, you just, you know, he gave him, the, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he gave him, it was like a cup or something, and the money will appear in the cup, you know. And the guy said, why, why are you being so kind to me? Like, why are you being so nice to me? He says, because whenever any of your kind humans come into our world, they either steal stuff, they either wreck something, they either, you know, take the piss out of it, you know. And it's just basically saying that's what people do. But no, you showed a bit of respect. You were nice. You were friendly. You're polite. Yeah, fair. If everyone was like that, sure, we'd be flying. And that's really what it is. Like, and uh, you know, <clears throat> so there's this, 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 lots and lots of stories about that. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, children and stuff. Uh, the fairies, if if the fairies thought that parents were abusive towards a child, they would take the child and replace it with a, with a demon. Change those boys now. They'd sort you out. You know. That's great stories about them, but it was it was it was they always believed that it was families uh, from that that children were not be were being neglected or whatever that they were taken, and they were taken by the fairies. But they were looked after. There's a are you familiar with the poem "The Stolen Child" by Yeats? 
I'll have to, I'll give you a bit, a wee, a wee bit of it, it's beautiful. With a wave of moon like glasses, the dim grey sands with light, and far by farthest Rosses we footed all the night, and weaving olden dances and mingling hands and mingling glances till the moon has taken flight. And to and fro we leap and we chase the frothy bubbles while the world is full of troubles and anxious in its sleep. Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, and with a fairy hand in hand, for the world is more full of weeping than you should ever understand. <laughs> William Butler Yeats. <laughs> you know, so there you go. So like, you know, it's, 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 like that, that's our fucking culture. It's great. Why would you want to? Why would you want to be looking at Simon Cowell and all that shite when you, when you have this, you know? And then your boys like Tolkien and all, ripping us off and making a clean fortune out of it. <laughs> and then the guy from New Zealand makes a film out of it and makes even more. And we're sitting here going, "Oh Jesus!" You know. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you mentioned earlier on the 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 role of the sort of healing women. Yes. In the, the band facets, yeah. the wise women. And. I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts about, I guess, I guess the the role of women in Irish folklore mm-hmm. and the the roles that they've assumed in the stories or the roles that they're given mm-hmm. or that they played in the stories. Well, women, you know, ancient Ireland was very much, a, um, what's the word, um, a match. What's the, what's the word? Matriarchal. That's the one, thank you. I won't try and say it, but that's it. <laughs> a matriarchal society, exactly. Uh, you know, you have like Queen Maeve and, and, and all the rest, which, you know, and uh, were very, very respected. And, and, and you know, uh, you know, they, um, they were feared and revered in equal measure. But in, in the stories, you know, women play a massive role. Uh, a lot of the, the lot of, in a lot of the stories, the, the, the per, excuse me, the person that would deal with the problem, you know, with... Uh, it was usually the man who started the problem that in the stories. Like, he'd go off and he'd cut down a fairy tree or he'd do something daft, you know? Uh, and it was usually the woman that resolved it, you know? Um, and that's very much a thing in Irish sort of culture. It's usually the woman that kind of keeps everyone in line and, you know, and sort of, you know, the man, he does whatever, but it's very much the man that calls the shots, like, you know yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know that comes across an awful lot in in, in this, but it, but but it's not in a kind of a, you know that sort of almost British kind of like oh her indoors you know the ball and chain and that kind of stuff. It's not like that at all. It's it's they're spoken about in a very like they're like there's something to be admired. There's something to be almost you know. I get the impression that, you know, from the stories that the, the women seem to have a closer connection to their world than men did. Because, uh, probably because, you know, the more sensitive and stuff like that. I don't know, but but they, they, they just seem to um, have these very important roles within the stories. They were healers. They were carers. They were delegators. Uh, they were leaders. And, um, you know, uh, but, but having said that, on the flip side of that, they were also like we you know when when the shit hit the fan it was the it was the women that really like came after you like 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 the morrigan for example yeah. the witch um you have of course uh, a lot of these a lot of these bad faces uh when they were demonized and became calyox uh 
they were they were extradited. They were they were they were sent up. They basically ended up living like hermits and stuff, and you know they were feared and stuff. So as a reaction to that, they would put curses on people and stuff like that, and uh, you know, uh, I, I, so they were fe- so basically it was like. It, it all goes back to this thing like, you know, it's all working fine. Everyone's getting on grand, you know, but why, why, but it was fear. It was like the men's fear of, oh, these women are taking over. They're telling us what to do. and We'll show them. We'll show them. And then they, they did what they did. So uh, as a result, then um, it's a bit like Brexit, you know, it's a bit like, ah, yeah, we'll show them. And then like, it's, fuck, what have we done? She made a buzz that, lads. <laughs> and you look at some of the stories, like the children of Lur and yeah. even Finn McCool and Eve Kinnor, the women seem to possess quite magical oh, yes. uh, traits where they can cast a spell on men or children or something. They're the fairies were, were afraid of women as well. Uh, because women, you, women just seem to have... I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to say I know, but they... they like, it was very, very important to me that I wrote this book with my wife. Um, a, because, you know, she's very into it, uh, but also because she, she, she just, you know, she's, she, understands, she has a real compassion for, for, for this sort of thing. And, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, it was interesting because when I was writing some of the stuff in that, you know, and I was kind of maybe saying certain things and stuff, and she would say, oh, that's, you can't really say that, and, you know, I wouldn't really put it that way. And, to have a kind of woman's point of view on it, because you know the thing about about these stories is that the, 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 they deal with stuff that's very very sensitive, and I didn't realise it until we started writing this book, and even myself and Paul were talking about it. like things like you know child death and stuff like that, uh, mental illness, um, suicide, you know, serious heavy heavy stuff. Um, a lot of the a lot of these subject matters were explained and understood and accepted through these stories and uh, the belief was that there were people that just didn't belong here but there was a better place for them it wasn't heaven it was somewhere else and uh, you know because of the other problem was you see if you think about it like the people were persecuted by the church if you you know if you, if you if a child if a child died before it was baptized it went into limbo you know it's horrible stuff suicide people, you know, suicide victims went to hell, you know. Babies were buried outside of cemeteries if they weren't baptised. They were buried in fields, you know. These fairy stories gave these people, these poor souls, a place to go, a place to belong, a place of refuge, a place of sanctuary. I mean, that's so fucking important. In a way, that is <laughs> a, a major thread of, like, helping people deal with the yeah. realities of life or coming through these folktales. Exactly. I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, like, I mean, look at, like, what the church did, like, the Magdalene wash houses and stuff like that. Like, years ago, if a woman was, got, got pregnant, you know, and the dad disappeared or whatever, she would go to a Banfasa. The Banfasa were midwives as well. So they would, they would have helped her give birth. Um, they would have helped her with the child. Um, they probably would have, if, if, there was, if the mother was sickly or something, they'd organise a, a, a wet nurse, you know, all these things. Was a, do you know what I mean? I mean, there was a humanity there. It's kind of a societal structure yeah, exactly. in a way. Exactly. But then, you know, this stuff came in and, and that was all done away. That was all seen. And then these poor creatures were thrown into these Magdalene washhouses. And if you were if you were unfortunate enough to, you know, suffer from depression or something, you were locked up in St. Luke's, mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of your life. 
another thing that I sense that maybe that there's value in um, reconnecting with these sort of folklore stories and it's something that you've already mentioned but our, our connection with the land and the herbs and the way that because we were like a I guess like a rural kind of mm. people that we would have foraged a lot yeah it's something yeah. I'd love to learn more about at some at some right. stage but um, Pat Noon's the man to talk to yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he tell you all he knows yeah. all the herbs and, and, and today like you know when you look at the, the actual health state yeah. of all the, the western countries it's more and more important to get back back to the land and and back to being able to learn more about well, food I, I, I see it myself I see it myself I mean I grew up in, in, in rural County Kildare and I was I, I cycled everywhere because you had to because there's no fucking buses around you know and then you know I started living I, I left I went to college just for how myself living in the kind of urban situations got lazy and you know, I said, I used to have a six pack, now I got a barrel of Guinness. <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, you know, and I think, you know, I, I, you know, you can become very uh, disconnected uh, with stuff. I, and these, these stories, they, um, yeah, they, they just show you the importance of looking after yourself, looking after the people around you, looking after um, if someone is in trouble, you don't fucking walk past them, you know? Um, you take them home, you look after them. You know, I mean, my, my grand-uncle, uh, he, he lived in Chicago. He's, he's dead a long time now. He was, he was a good age when he died. He was in his 90s. He died about nearly 30 years ago. But I remember Uncle Doug, we used to call him, he was a cop in Chicago back in the 30s when Al Capone was on the go. And he's some amazing stories. But uh, he, he said to me, when they, him, he went over to America, uh, you know, just when the Wall Street crash had happened and the place was in, in an awful state. And there was a guy, they were coming home from somewhere and there was a guy lying on the side of the street and he was very well dressed and uh, he was drunk, he was passed out. Now back home in Ireland, you saw a drunk man on the side of the street like that, you brought him home, you gave him a cup of tea and maybe uh, and, and even a, a little couch for the night, you know, because that's what you did and that's what they did with this fella and they brought him back and they gave him a cup of tea or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And when he sobered up, he was like, lads, thanks so much. Because he was a politician and it was during Prohibition. So if he was caught, <laughs> drunk during Prohibition, he was, he was finished. And he basically said, boys, he says, thanks so much. He says, I says, you, you, can, you have three choices. Now, these boys were unemployed, they had nothing. He said, the cops, the fire brigade, or the post office, whichever one you want. And he, Uncle Doug decided to become a cop. All right. Right in the middle of uh, of it all, but it's some great <laughs> stories about 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 the mobsters and all the rest of it, yeah. you know. But um, you know, th- th- that's as he said. If he hadn't have done that, if he hadn't shown that bit of humanity, he mightn't have even yeah. survived. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so there's a you know it's just and that's what these stories about. Just 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 show a bit of fucking kindness. Now not now bloody over the top stuff like it has to be genuine as well, you know. I think nowadays as well, I think people are very fake with each other. It's like Facebook. You know, it's like, ah, oh, we're all so happy and they're all killing each other. Facebook. <laughs> Facebook, exactly. You know, it's, it's, about, it's about sort of, yeah, being, being sort of true to yourself and the people around you and, um, and, and not looking for anything in return. But if you, if you do good things, it's, it's like positive energy. The more positive energy you put out there. Now, that's very easy for me to say. I can be one of the most negative bloody pessimistic feckers you'll ever meet 
but I'm I'm seeing it, and a lot of it's through through the research of meeting the characters. I mean, the amount of people, um, and I have met. I mean, characters like amazing characters like Pat Noon, like Eddie Lennon, like you know, um, the man Bregan from from Offaly, you know, um, loads of uh, just uh, the list goes on, like just all these wonderful characters. And that I would never have met. And these people are in touch with the land. They're in touch with their, you know, and they're they're just they, they're, and they're not. And you know what's lovely about them? They're not. They're not going around the place fucking all hippie shit. Like they're just normal, ordinary people. You know, they're not telling everyone. Look at me. I'm a Thai great. I grew a plant. You know, no, yeah, no. They, this is what they do, and they're saying, look, it works for me. You know, you know. So like it's 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 you know you don't it. It's it's like a subtlety. It's like it's like it's like trying to live the best you can, but don't go around telling everyone. Just get on with it. You mentioned <laughs> about Irish people going to America, yeah, which is obviously a big part of our history in this country, massive part. And when I was speaking to Maria, we we touched on the subject of storytelling being a way to bring yourself off to a different place regardless of what's happening around you and when exactly. you think of all the illustration of why he's going to America oh, yes. <laughs> when you think of all the, <laughs> the Statue of Liberty there <laughs> when you think of all the people who went there for, forced uh, sort of like against their will really like they were forced to emigrate and things like that and the storytelling played a big part over there I'm just thinking about the opening lines of that song Nancy Spain Mm. Last night as I lay dreaming of pleasant days gone by, my mind being bent on wandering to Ireland's Isle did fly. <laughs> and then they go off to the market. That's right. <laughs> it was the 24th of June, the day, the day before the fair, when Ireland's sons and daughters did all assemble there. The young, the old, the brave, the bold, their duties to fulfil with the little church in Clooney in the town called Spansley. Oh. <laughs> but that's amazing isn't it that you can just imagine people sitting around a pit thinking about if they're ever going to get back to Ireland because back then like people didn't come back yeah. to the place that they were they were forced no, to, they didn't. To, to go away from they didn't like and, and I mean it must have been absolutely <clears throat> terrifying I mean can you imagine what it must have been like to live in a you know on a wee plot of land somewhere in Mayo and all of a sudden you're in New York jeez it must have been terrifying you know but like you know, those people were great people. Like when you think of what they did, and you know, and, and what they achieved, and and how respected the Irish are in America, you know, and that do you know why that is? It's because we feckin' stuck to our bones with our culture, you know. You see, if you if you, I think you know, it's important to obviously you know interact with everything, and that's really important. But you need to know where you come from yourself. Because as I said earlier, if you don't have a sense of who you are, where you're from, it's very easy for someone else just to take over, you know? And if you... So what, the problem with... with the, the tragedy was that, uh, you know, uh, Irish people are, you know, very fucking trusting as well, you know? Um, you know, they, they... The same thing has happened over and over and over again in, in, in Irish history where people come in from the outside and you think... You know, whether it be a religion, a different religion, Christianity, whether it be a political system, I you know, when they come in and it starts off like, ah, yeah, yeah, that'll be all right, you know. It's like when the soldiers first came in 1969, they were making them cups of tea, <laughs> you know. And then it, it, it all just, it, it, it all goes horribly wrong. And 
I think um, what, 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 you know, what the fundamental thing is that, you know, when I think, you know, what these stories are about, and it's so important, it's about, it's about self-respect, right? And it's also about, about being confident in yourself. Um, the fairy folk, the Shira, you won't meet a more confident Shara Feckers. They think they are class. Now, I'll tell you something. You, know, you probably know this yourself, uh, Anna. The people who tend to succeed the most in life are not the most talented, are not the most gifted, they're the most bloody confident, you know? And um, Irish people have an awful habit of apologising. You know, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> like, what are you fucking sorry for? I'm sorry for my existence, you know? <laughs> um, and what these stories do is they... And that, a, lot, a lot of that, they reckon, came from the, 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 the backlash, the famine. They the reckon before the famine that... Uh, like Irish literature was a lot more racy and stuff. Like there's a great book by a guy called uh, Brian Brian Merriman called The Midnight Court, and it's all about a fellow who falls asleep on a fairy hill in County Clare and he wakes up and the fairies are all about him and they're basically holding him to court because he's human, but they want to keep him because humans have big dicks, <laughs> and all the all the women fairy fairies want to ride him. It's magic, like you know, and you know, and you're reading this. And then, and then, and then, after the famine, and, and, and when the church took over, there was no sign of that. And who actually tried, tried to, um, who did not try to, who did uh, revitalize that sort of that kind of um, that confidence in, 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 in literature was James Joyce, and he was persecuted for that. Isn't there a, a book of letters or something that he has written to his lover or something like that? that there was, I'm not sure, yes, 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 yes. It was, uh, what was her name? Oh, Jesus. That's right, and the really, yeah. What was her name? What was her fucking name? That's going to do my head. It was it, um, Nora Barnacle? That, well done. Jeez, <laughs> I was like, it was something, it was something shell, it was a shell or something. Yeah. It was a shell, it was a, sh- yeah. You're actually, Nora Barnacle, you're absolutely right. That stuff was very, uh, and the Celts, you know, the, that, was, that was the other thing as well. I mean, you know, it was the whole thing as well with the women and stuff. I mean, you know, ironically, in cultures where women are, are treated better, uh, there's not as much hang-ups about sex and stuff. Because obviously, if you're going to be a, a bollocks, well, you're not going to get much in that department, you know. But if you're nice and you're friendly and, and you're not a complete dickhead, you know, um, so you know it's 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 really easy to see that if when you go back, like even the Celtic stuff, the early Irish stuff, the literature, there's not the same hang-ups about sex. There's not the same hang-ups about being a man, being a woman, or any of that stuff, you know. And it was only and that stuff only really kind of came into play later on. When you think about German and Grania, yeah, is a, a classical kind of story about like heavily. Oh, oh, very much so. I mean, sure. I mean, even even like in in the time, you know, uh, you know, they talk about this old fella coming into battle, and he was so old that his balls were hanging 
down and they were swinging and hitting both his ankles. Were they saying that that was a good sign? No, they were just... Or like he had big balls? As if they were saying he, he, yeah, it was, like, it, was like a, it was like... Well, no, they were sort of laughing at him. They were just saying he was so old. Oh, uh, he was so old <laughs> and he was so wrinkly that his ball sack was hanging down between his legs, you know? And, you know, but, it was, but, you know, but the thing about it is, my point is that that was humour. Now, if you told a joke like that now, 2,000 years later, you'd still get a laugh. <clears throat> and that was genuine. Uh, and then what happened was, you know, things got watered down. I mean, there's another great story from the, you know, where, where Cucullin came back from some battle and he was, he was after having one of his warp spasms and he was going book mad, you know. And the only way they could get him calmed down was for all the women to bear their breasts on him. Have you heard that one before? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so this was the, but you know what I mean? We were we were fairly, we were you know we were fairly like uh, like going about the French being all a bit that way, you know, a bit bit racy, you know. The Irish were fucking, you know, and and uh, those stories, you know, it, it's not just that side, but it's it's a, you know it's 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 okay to be human. It's okay to be fucking attracted to someone. It's okay to have those urges. It's all, and then the fucking church came along. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. Shit, that was toward the arse out of it. So that's why this stuff is so bloody important. So there you go. Can I, Transport you back to your yeah. granny's knee and going. And do you have any stories that you remember from from back in the day? Yeah, um, I mean, she she would have told uh, stories about the banshee, of course, you know, and she would have talked about the curse of the banshee, the mark of the banshee, and the mark of the banshee was when if the banshee she would scratch it usually across the face. And when you got the mark of the banshee, you, you got what was known as the curse of the banshee, and the curse of the banshee means wherever you went, wherever you did, the banshee would be there. So you'd be sitting there and you look over and she must be sitting beside you. You go up the stairs, she's down at the top of the stairs. You go out to the car, she's sitting in the passenger seat. She's everywhere. Imagine what it's like if you have to go to the toilet, huh? And, uh, you know, but the, that's the thing, you know, stuff like that. And uh, she'd talk about changelings and she'd talk about uh, children being stolen by the fairies and stuff like that. And um, uh, there's a great story that she told me as a child and uh, about a fella a boy who had no story and, and, and it's a really famous story and I read in a book late, many years later collected by a great a great folklorist from County Limerick called Frank Danner um, I mean I could tell you the story like would you like to hear it? Oh absolutely <laughs> okay. well uh, Ellie, well, I first heard the story from my grandmother uh, and it was her version of it and then I heard uh, then I read Frank Danner's version and then I, um, I heard another version from another guy uh, from Kerry called, I can't think of his name, but it'll, it'll come to me. But uh, Eddie Lanahan as well would do the story. And it's all about a boy called Tom. And uh, as my grandmother would say, Tom lived in a time when you had nothing, you had nothing. <laughs> and if you wanted something, you had to work for it. And that's just the way it was. Because if you didn't do any work, you ended up in the workhouse. And a workhouse was a place that was... Uh, people would uh, apparently were, were happier to die in the ditches than go to a workhouse. And these poor souls that, that, that didn't have uh, proper employment, didn't have a skill, didn't have a trade, they were known as hard workers. And they go to these things called hiring fairs. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. It's quite barbaric when you think about it. Like children and everything went to these. Imagine like a porch, you know, it's, it's, it's awful. Like, you know, but these go and these old bollocks as the farmers would come along and, and basically hire them to work on their land. 
was a form of slave labor, let the truth be known. But the Irish word for these people was spalpines. And uh, the spalpines were very, the older spalpines, uh, you know, were, 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 they were very popular. And the reason for this, uh, Anna, was because they were great storytellers. Uh, they would travel from village to village, townland to townland, town to town, house to house. And they get to hear all the gossip and all the stories and all the news. And, uh, you know, back in a time before you had radio and television, that was a great thing to have, you know. And the more stories you knew and the more, the more, the better the stories you knew, the more work you got. And that was the way it was. But this particular character, Tom, was a great worker. You know, he, he did everything you asked him to do, brilliant. But he had no stories. Not feckin' one. Let the truth be known, he bore the shite out of you, you know. Couldn't even tell you the time of day. And as a result of this, poor old uh, Tom was, was getting it tight, trying to get a bit of work. So he'd knock on someone's door and they'd say, ah, now, Tom, not today. There's a wee woman coming up the road after you now and she's a great storyteller. We'll hire her instead. And then, uh, as a result of this, it wasn't long before they could get no work at all. And Tom was there walking through some class of a field, starving, his belly was grumbling. The clothes were hanging off him. He had no work, he had no food, he had nowhere to stay. Because his spalpine, when he did the work, he got a bite to eat and an old shed to sleep in. He had none of this. And he thought to himself, surely to God, things can't get any worse. Well, believe me, Anna, when you've been around as long as I have, you'll find out things do, can, and will always get fucking worse. And just as he said that, the heavens opened up and the rain started pouring down on time around. And poor old Tom was there, stuck in the middle of the storm. But he persevered. He persevered. He kept going. He kept going. And as he kept going, he saw a little light in the distance. And he thought, Jesus, for there's light, there's hope, you know. So he kept walking towards the little light, and the closer he got to it, he realised it was coming from the window of a little cottage, a little white, white, whitewashed cottage with a thatched roof, the half door, you know, the wee, the wee window, you know, and uh, to save on the window tax. And he went up to the door of the house, and he was just about to knock on the door, and he says, I said, please God, please God, let the people in this house let me in and be good to me and kind to me, and let me out of the rain for a while, and please God, please God, don't make them ask me to tell them a story. <laughs> so he, ris- he raises his hand and he's about to knock on the door when the door opens. And there standing in the doorway is a big tall man dressed in black. <laughs> he's got a big long black head of hair and a big black beard and eyes that burn like coals. He looks like a cross between Rasputin and Count Dracula. He says, hello Tom, how are you doing? I've been expecting you. Tom says, Jesus, I've never met this man in my life. Who is he? He says, Tommy, you coward. He says, I'm free. He says, come in out of that now, Tom. So he comes inside and, ah, oh, the cottage is lovely and warm. Oh, it's lovely. There's a big fire blazing. There's a wee crook hanging over the fire and there's a pot hanging off the crook and something's bubbling away inside of it and the smell of it is only gorgeous. And the man says to Tom, Tommy, you're hungry. Tom says, I'm starving. He says, sit down there now. And he sits down in a wee chair and there's a wee little table in front of him. The man just runs his hand across the table and a big bowl of stew appears and a cup of buttermilk and a few slices of wheat and bread and a big slap of butter. Oh, he's never seen food like this in all his days. Beautiful, beautiful. He eats the whole lot up and the man says, Tom, 
Are you tired? Tom says, I'm flipping exhausted. He says, there's a room there for you, Tom. So he points to a door and Tom hangs him and he gets up and he opens the door and he, behind the door, sure enough, there's a room and in the room there's a wee bed and it's got fresh linen sheets and all covering a beautiful feather mattress and big plump feather pillows and beautiful warm woolen blankets. Oh my goodness, sure, Tom, sure he thinks he's died and gone to heaven. Poor old Tom was only used to sleep in old hay barns and sheds and half the time he'd be sharing about a lock of pigs or cattle or something, you know. So as soon as his head hit the pillow, sure, didn't he fall fast asleep? Well, during the night Tom was woken up by something poking him in the eye and something twisting his ear and something pulling his hair. And he opened his eyes and he looked up and there's three wee boys looking down on Three wee feckin' bollockses. Oh, even looking craters, you know, and they're all shivering <coughs> and tithering and laughing and nudging each other. Hello, Tom, how are you doing, Tom? Are you a lazy boy, Tom? It's awful lazy. Oh, awful lazy. Lazy finger, Tom. Look at lying in bed, Tom. Oh, lazy, lazy boy, Tom. <laughs> and one of them is laughing and Tom can see his teeth and they're all rotten. And he sees now worm come from between his teeth and wriggle its way out of his mouth, up into his nose, come out his eye and back into his ear again and continue the process a few more times. And then the boy started laughing hysterically. <laughs> oh, Tom, we have a job for you. Tom, we have some job for you. And one grabbed Tom by the hair of the head and pulled him out of the bed and he landed on the floor. And there on the floor beside him was a cop. The three boys started looking at each other and nudging each other, going, <laughs> Who's going to carry the coffin? Tom will. Come on now, Tom, come on. Put your back into it, Tom. And they threw the coffin onto his back and they kicked him and they punched him and they brought him out through the front door out into the night. And the terrible storm was still raging and the wind and the rain was howling around him. Ah, oh, but the three little demons, they punched Tom and they kicked him and they called him terrible names and used words so awful it would make the angels cry in heaven. They took him to a graveyard. There was a big wall around the graveyard and he says, Tom, now, carry the coffin over the wall. And Tom says, what? He said, don't, Joe, don't answer back, just do it. And they start, come on now, Tom, put your back in the Tom, come on now, Tom, you matter most, Tom, come on now, Tom, come on now, for feck's sake, Tom, you're useless, Tom, useless, useless. So Tom, he couldn't take any more of the abuse, so he just lifted up the coffin and he threw it over the wall. And he, 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 he jumped over the wall on the other side and landed on the ground and he was totally out of breath. And as soon as he'd done this, the three little whores walked a few yards the other direction, opened the gate and walked inside. And then they brought him to a wee plot where a shovel was sticking out of the plot. Aye. And the boys got awfully excited then. Oh, terrible excited. One fellow nearly did a bat flip, you know, and I think he did, but he just landed on his arse. And he says, who's going to dig the grave? <laughs> Tom will. Come on now, Tom, dig a hole, Tom. Come on now, Tom, for God's sake, Tom. You're a matter of mouse, tell your pathetic Tom. Come on, dig a hole, dig, 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 dig. And they shoved the shovel into Tom's hands and some digging and digging and digging and digging and digging until he found himself in a big hole. He looked up and three boys were looking down Tom. <laughs> and they grabbed him by the hair of the head and they lifted him out. And then they looked at Tom and they looked at the coffin. They looked at Tom and they looked at the coffin again. And then they looked at the coffin and they looked at Tom. Who's going to go in the coffin? <laughs> Tom will, Tom will. And they lifted him by the legs and the arms, one grabbed him by the hair and they pulled him up and they threw him inside the coffin. And the lid of the coffin was thrown on top of him. 
and Tom was trapped inside the coffin. And he could hear the sound of the nails being hammered in. Tap, 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 tap. Well, now, there was Tom trapped inside the coffin. The air was gone. It was so dark he couldn't see the finger in front of his nose. Oh, bejeebers, he was scared. And he started fighting with the, the lying in the coffin, screaming out, Help, help, somebody help me, please, please help me. I'll do anything, I'll even learn a story. Oh, but then he heard the muffled voices of the boys saying, Who will go inside the grave? Tom will. <laughs> and Tom felt the coffin being lifted up and down into the hole he went and then he heard the sound of the earth being thrown on top of the coffin and there he was trapped inside fighting with the lion in the coffin begging for help screaming for help promising he'd even learn a story and as he did this he found himself fighting with the sheets of his bed oh thanks be to Jesus it was just all a bad dream so he lifted the sheets off his bed and he was still in all his clothes and his boots were still on, covered in mud. Very strange, most peculiar. So he gets out of the bed and he walks over to the door and he opens the door and the tall, thin man dressed in black is sitting there smoking his pipe. Well, Tom, did you sleep all right last night? Oh, be jeepers, I'm not sure about that. No, I'm not sure. Oh, that's awful sad now, Tom. Tell me another thing, Tom. Do you have a story to tell? Well, funny enough, I was in the bed last night, and just before he got a chance to start it, the tall man stand up and take a deep breath, and he says, Who will tell us a story? And the three little feckin' whores come flying down the chimney going, Tom will, Tom will, come on now, Tom, tell a story. Everything's all out, we love stories. Oh, yeah, Tom, come on, man, tell a story, tell a story. And they jumped up on his shoulders and he ran out into the, into the field in front of the wee house and he hit the ground with the three demons hanging on to him. And he thought that was it. He thought, I'm a goner now, I'm finished. But as soon as he hit the ground, the three little men disappeared. And when he looked over his shoulder, the cottage had disappeared too. All that was left was a ball of mist. But let me tell you something. From that day onwards, Tom the Spalpeen was never, ever, ever out of work. Everybody wants to hire Tom because Tom the Spalpeen had the greatest, the best story that anyone had ever heard. There you go. Oh. <laughs> Shinny on scale. <laughs> Thank you for telling that story. <laughs> So you can imagine as young fellow listening to that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and the, the wind and the rain outside and you're living by the <coughs> sea in Galway and these stories, like, you know, that's the sort of stuff I grew up listening yeah. to and it was beautiful. I mean, you think about that story and I like, what, what is that, what lesson is, is behind that story? Well, the lesson is that nothing is handed to you. you, you ha- Tom needed... Tom was a hard worker and stuff, but the, the, the fact of the matter was for him, for him to, 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 to succeed, he had to learn stories. He had to learn a story. He, he wouldn't for whatever reason. 
So the fairies felt sorry for him. He was probably an orphan. These were usually orphans. The fairies were good, but they, they had a funny way of doing things, you know. And, uh, you know, they, they, they obviously took pity on him. I said, we're going to teach this boy a story. A story he'll never forget. Yeah. <laughs> and I was also thinking that when he, when he asked, when he was saying to himself, I'll even, tell, I'll even learn a story in yes. the coffin. Yeah. But it was like, that was the story. Yeah. And I think that's the thing for a, for all, a lot of us to take away as well, is that you can be thinking that you're going off and you've nothing yeah. really. It's looking at you the whole You've time. nothing decent to offer, but in actual fact, you're going through, and your yeah. your the journey is the story. Well, what it also is about is about life. Is that life is never easy, and and, and people always go, oh, life is so hard, and life is this, and life is that. But like, as I talk to like say people like Raymond and that, you know, I mean, if he didn't go through what he went through, he wouldn't be able to create that wonderful work. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, anyone who's ever really contributed something. Has, has been through shit mm. do you know what I mean like like, you know the, what I said the, the man who never made a mistake never made anything in his life you know yeah. um, you know that's sort of what it's about if that makes sense and listen to that story there's a man there and I getting buried alive mm. by three smallies mm. that's a terrifying experience and do you think that in the, the sort of modern sort of Manifestation of storytelling through cartoons and things have they been like over sanitized? You know, because everything's always you wouldn't get a story on a cartoon saying of a man getting bright live now, would you? No, no, but then again, modern cartoons have gone a bit that way. I don't know if you ever watch Ren and Stimpy. Oh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's kind of gone that way a bit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I used to love them, you know, you know, and the boys looking in the window at them and stuff. And what kind of reaction do you get when you want to tell a story like that in the a, a class? Of um, of young people, what reaction do you get when you're looking into the crowd, into the audience? I just, I don't want, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my trumpet or whatever the word is, but they're just sitting looking at you with their mouths open, you know, because the majority of these kids have never experienced a story like you know a real story being told and. What I, one of the things I do as well uh, with, with, with the kids is I get, I've had them interact. And so, for example, <clears throat> when I'm saying, you know, and, Tom, and they says, who will carry the coffin? And all the kids, so you have like a, a school full, 200 kids, and they all go, Tom will! <laughs> and then they're part of the story, you see, you know? And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, they, 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 they love it, like, you know, they really do. And I think it's, it's testimony that whether you're a child in 2019 or a child in 1719 or 1619, you're still a feckin' child and you still love a story, you know? And uh, kids, you know, the, the, and what's so important about, about storytelling is, is human interaction. Like part of what I do is I work as a storyteller in the Royal Victoria Hospital on the Falls Road. I've been working with them as their storyteller now for, Jesus, fuck, six years or something. Yeah, six years. And it's great. It's great. And, you know, I go in and, 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 and I do stories with the kids. And some of them are very young, five, six. Some of them are. I've told stories to children that have gone in the next time and, and to find out that, that they've died, you know. And uh, But the, the doctors, the, I've told stories to kids in the hospital. And I remember there was one particular occasion when I was telling the story to this little fella. 
and we were playing music and stuff. And then another child came over and, and we all joined in and we were doing a bit of music and I played the didgeridoo and stuff like that and the kids think this is hilarious. And next thing I heard all this clapping, like, you know, clapping along, and all the doctors and the surgeons were behind us and they were all joining in. And I thought that was a powerful thing. Do you know, like, these are people like that, you know, in my mind I'd be thinking like, oh, here's this fucking Egypt coming in, uh, annoying us. No, no, they didn't. They, they saw that these kids are laughing, they're having the crack. <clears throat> fucking hell's probably waiting for them, you know, in, in some fucking 10, 12 hour long surgery or something, yeah. you know. It's like you're transporting them yeah, yeah, away to some magical land. But it's, it's, it's very humbling. It's very, very humbling for me. And I think, you know, that's what, again, it's that reminder of we're only here for a very, very, very short amount of time. Make the fucking most of it. You only get one lap. <laughs> you know what I mean and, and when you go in there and you see these poor children and you're just thinking of these poor kids like should they you know but they're laughing and they're having the crack and you're just thinking geez I'm the luckiest man on earth you know I mean I could be a, one of those cunts to give out tickets for parking you know <laughs> you know my job is to make people miserable <laughs> you know um you know, so, you know, that's just one example of, of, yeah. of, of, of yeah, the kids. And, and they see the important. And I work with I work with children from both both sides of the community. I work with children with learning disability. I work with, uh, uh, down south, I do a lot of work with uh, kids, I- I- immigrant children. Um, right across the board. Yeah. I know what the one thing they all have in common are. They're all children. And they're all the same. It's only when the adults start getting involved all those tits up <laughs> then the other thing is like you're really like helping adults reconnect with their inner child oh yeah as well well that's true that's that's a yeah, good point and that like yeah. a lot of today's kind of like geared at like making people grow up very fast and ah it's awful like i mean kids are not allowed i mean <coughs> like when i was a child there was no such thing as the international like that like you know and um kids are just exposed to so much now it's I mean, the stuff on the internet scares the shit out of me. I can't imagine what it would do to a child. Like, you know. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine showed me this website called Rotten.com. I don't know if you ever heard of it. I was like, why would, who, who wants to look at this? <laughs> what universe, you know? You know, but like, I was thinking like, uh, you know, it's just, it's, 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 there's too much, you know, and, and children's innocence are taking it away from them too quickly and stuff. But that kind of like, that kind of lines up with the, I guess kind of a bit of a theme of this this chat that we're having in that if if there's something so rich as storytelling where your imagination is firing all cylinders and you're transported off to some magical land mm. that's a very you know, it's, a, it's a very rich experience in a way and mm-hmm. if that is there then it doesn't leave so much space for kind of more negative things where and if it isn't there then it it does leave a bit of a vacuum for other stuff to come in. Well, well, that's it. I mean, I just I just showed there's a quote here that we used from Yeats at the start of the book, which I think sums it all up. I think it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful quote. Uh, if I can find it now, she's the fairies are playing tricks. Me, <laughs> the page is gone. Ah, oh, they they love they love playing tricks on them. They they really do. Uh, let me show you now. It says, uh, "Let us go forth, the tellers of tales." and seize whatever prey the heart longs for. And have no fear. Everything exists, everything is true, and the earth is only a little dust under our feet. William Butter Yeats. Beautiful. <laughs> you know? 
And, you know, like, when, when I'd be working with the kids in the hospital and that, like, you know, I mean, you're just looking at them and, and they just, you know, they just forget. I mean, it happens as well, like, um, where, you know, kids will be getting injections and drips put in and it's very painful and stuff. And the doctors would ask me to maybe, you know, just talk to them for a while, tell them a story while they're doing it, just to keep their mind off it and stuff like that, you know. And, uh, you know, so uh, there's a possibility maybe I might be doing, uh, I'll keep you posted, I might be doing a wee documentary with the BBC about the work I do in the hospital yeah. as well. Are you in there? Uh, how often are you in there? I mean, every month. Every month, every month yeah. for a day? It's through a group uh, called Read for Good. That's uh, their charity. Actually, their main patron is Jim Baldrick from Blackadder. Oh, yeah. Tony Robbins. <laughs> He's the main man behind yeah. it, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I would do and, and working with uh, kids with severe, uh, I work, work a lot of, with children with uh, severe learning disability and stuff like that. And uh, they respond to it very, very well. You know what, you... you it springs to mind that what you're doing there really is kind of, it's like a, a crossing over of art and the whole academic and medical side of things. And mm. a lot of the times seem to be quite separated. And Th- that's, even think that's like a, yeah, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, you're right. Like times of recession, it's like the arts, yeah. they're gone. Yes. The fund is cut. That's whereas it. people don't realise the, the true deep value of having this as part of our society. Well, it was, it was stories about like, you know, during the Second World War and stuff, you know, when you know, places were being looted and raided and all, but it was always made sure that the art was protected. Because that's that's what kept even though everyone was fucking killing each other and and, and, and had just that's what kept us human. That's what separated us from the animals was the art. Because we were just uh, once you take that away you're just you know you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> How can people find out more about everything that you're doing about books and the storytelling events? How can people find out about what? Sorry? All the stuff that you're doing. Oh, oh my God. Um, well, that's a, yeah, I have a, I, I'm on Facebook um, and uh, I have a website, uh, story, www.storyman.info, um, which I'm terrible at updating. Um, uh, funny, I was talking to my wife about it. She's going to try and, because I'm just, I, I, I'm typical sort of storyteller in the sense I'll tell the stories so the cows come home, but don't ask me to now be doing any kind of, you know, proper, you know, writing down accounts and all this shit, you know? That's the whole point of being a storyteller. (laughs) That's why it's called storytelling. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Have to come and find you somewhere. So, so, no, I, 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 uh, (coughs) if ever I'm doing any kind of gigs, I I usually put them up on Facebook and that, uh, public kind of stuff I do a lot of stuff in libraries and things like that I do work with a lady called Liz Weir I don't know if you've heard her before she's a great storyteller from Andrew so uh, I do stuff like that um, you know on like for example now on, on Halloween if anyone if anyone's listening uh, I'm doing <laughs> I'm doing uh, ghost stories for Halloween all day in Cross McGlenn Library and Everyone's welcome. There's definitely a few ghosts around Clasper Lane. Oh, yes, indeed. And it's great storytelling country around here. My wife's related to one, probably probably one of, well, no, not probably, definitely one of the greatest storytellers that ever came out of this country, a man called John Campbell. Uh, wonderful storyteller. Uh, he's from Mullabon up the road there. He's first cousin of Paul, uh, second cousin is dad, her dad's first cousin of, of John Campbell. But John Campbell was just a 
Jesus, he was funny as fuck as well. And he'd tell these little witty short ones because people would say, tell us a story, John, tell us a story. And he'd be literally like, you know, coming out of a shop <laughs> and he'd have to tell us, you know, <coughs> and, but he was the sort of boy he would like, you know. And, but like, great ones, he, 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 great ones very relevant to hear. There's two boys sitting in the pub and they're chatting to each other and one boy says to the other, it's an awful shame they got rid of the townlands for the postal system. And the other boy says, what on earth are you talking about? She says, ah, sure, it's all BT this and BT that and sure, it takes the whole character out of it. And the other fella says, well, I know a boy who would totally disagree with you there. He says, why is that? He says, I was locked years ago now during the, during the hard times. He was visiting a friend and he was on his way home. He was stopped by the soldiers. And they put the gun in the window and says, where were you? He says, killing a man. What? Killing a man. Right. Where are you off to? To kill more. <laughs> <laughs> and he spent the rest of his days in Long Kesh. And there's two townlands, killing a man and killing a more, you know. Yes. I kill more, you know. And, um, you know, but, but just, just little things like that. But, but that, was, that was the importance, you see. And you have to remember, he was telling these stories in a time when people were being fucking stopped by the Brits and were being fucking tortured. I mean, Paul, his dad would tell you stories, you know, and, you know, and being lifted into the barracks and stuff and, oh, mad stuff, mad, mad, mad. The barracks mad. that was just across the yeah, road. Yeah, yeah. They bring him in and um, they took a photo. This is, he told me, he's a lovely man, Sean, you call him. And uh, the fuckers brought him in. And they took a photograph of him with one of these, you know, the old-fashioned cameras. And there was some, that was, but had the, you know, the, the big bulb on it, when it go boom like that, you know. And they said, "This is the photograph of you when you've left here, but you haven't left yet." And then they punched him in the face after the photograph. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And now, you know, so the stories were important because there were power people had. I mean, your your brother talked about it, being able to speak the language. It was almost like a weapon that you could talk about people without them knowing and have a conversation that, you know, you didn't, certain people you didn't want to hear and whatever. And the stories were like that. There were and a lot of, a lot of great, great comedians like that, Billy Connolly and people like that, you know, they deal with really dark stuff through humour. I mean, to me, Billy Connolly is, is a storyteller. Yeah. Number one, you know, he's a storyteller. And another Irish guy who was great, a guy called Dave Allen, I don't know if you've heard of him, he was brilliant. Mm. But like these guys, like they, they, they challenged the church, they challenged the establishment, they challenged fucking everything. There's a great clip of Dave Allen on YouTube about how to teach a kid how to tell the oh, time. I love I don't know you've seen that, it's very funny, isn't it? It's got three hands. The first <laughs> hand, the second hand, and the third hand. But the third no, hand is the second hand. The third hand is the second hand. <laughs> That's right. Oh, brilliant. Okay. And at the end of it, I'll get you a digital watch. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, seeing as we're around this area, I remember very well, we were, it must have been around seven or eight years of age, whenever the checkpoint was still oh. going fully functional around here. And we were on the road with a play, with oh. Ashbury and Drama. And the, my dad always had a shitty transit van. Oh, really? oh cool, a transit van. Driving sets around. And mm. this particular one, had a problem with the engine that if you, every time you turn it off, it did backfire. Oh, and we're stopped at the checkpoint. Right. And oh, British no. soldiers like, oh, where are, you, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Mm. And I actually remember this van, for some reason, there was a, a, a really strong smell of petrol coming from inside the van, I think it was because there was a, an old 
boat engine as part of the set or something. I kind of vaguely remember that. Anyway, but this British soldier with camouflage and all on, just like, fairly certain he wanted the engine of the van to be turned off. Mm. My dad turned it off and then backfire. I see that. All of them hit the deck. With 20 odd, odd soldiers thought they were being Shot out. attacked. I could just yeah. imagine that. Like. <laughs> but the, but, the, but like, there's, there's great stories from around here where uh, one of the things they used to do was they used to have like uh, checkpoints and stuff, obviously. But they'd have a boy, right? And his job was to drive to the checkpoint all day long. And he'd drive around, 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 around. And while he was doing that, that would keep the, the Brits occupied. Ah, should the boys be off doing a bit of work somewhere else? You know? <laughs> <laughs> a few wee jobs. A few wee jobs, you know, but little things like, but you hear, you hear, you hear all sorts of stories. But I mean, that was one of the things as well um, I found very humbling coming from the south of Ireland, coming from the, the Republic, you know. We fucking got the Republic and then we handed it over to the church. Fucking well done, boys, you know. Out of the frying pan into the fire, you know. And, uh, um, you know, as I, as I, as I say, it says, you had the troubles, we had the Catholic Church. <laughs> you know, I went to the Christian Brothers, you see, so I fucking, you know, shaky tell you. But anyway, um, it was just it was just very humbling, though, coming up here back in 2000. And, you know, meeting people like your dad and stuff like that, and just how you know, very kind the people were and, and stuff. I mean, thinking about the, the history of the place and... Like we like there was the only time we ever came across that was uh, when we were kids going to the Gaeltacht uh, in Donegal. <clears throat> we used to go to the Gaeltacht in Guidor, and uh, back in the in the eighties, and uh, you know you, you know what, uh, just before the border you get stopped, and it was it was very frightening. I remember one time my ma bringing us up, and, and she's whatever you say to the soldiers, don't tell them you're going to the Gaeltacht. Don't tell them you're going to the Gaeltacht. <laughs> and. Um, <clears throat> And then we got stopped, and, and of course the soldier puts the gun in the window. Where are you going? And she goes, the girl talked. And then I, the brother pipes up, oh, mammy, you said not to tell the soldiers we're going to. And they're like, oh, she's like fucking rosy beads out. Like, you know? But, um, you know, but uh, like, I mean, that was just one little instant, but I can't imagine what it must have been like to have that 24-7. Like, it must have been a fucking nightmare. You know, and it just, it's its one of the reasons why I, 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 I've chosen to live in the north of Ireland, because I just, I find people here, they're just sort of straight with you, and you just, you, what you see is what you get, you know, and that's good. I, f- I find down south people are very nice, but then they fucking murder you behind your back, you know? <laughs> whereas, uh, whereas people up here, if they think you're a cunt, they'll just fucking tell you, you know. I remember your dad, fair play to me, one of the best lines I ever heard. I, I, I was, when I was doing the editing and the cultural on, and I came in and I had a broken arm, the arm and a cast. I fell, uh, I'd fell uh, and broke my arm. And he says, Stevie, he says, you look like a man who was talking when he should have been listening. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, that's brilliant. <laughs> you know? And I mean, you know, uh, I, you know even, even our wedding uh, last year, you know, Raymond was there and, and, and lots of people from, from here. And, you know, and it was just, it was lovely. It was just great. And I just, uh, um, you know, and people from both sides of the community and everything. And, and I just think it's... Uh, just, just up here, I, I, I just think people take take things like culture and all very, very seriously up here because identity is so important in the north, you know, um, that I just felt like that um, it's a bit watered down. It's a bit, a little bit watered down in the south. Uh, yeah. Not, not, yeah. not. It's pure, you know, tourism and stuff like that. And uh, it could be an element of the fact that it was 
it was you know, probably more oppressed up here for, for a long time exactly. that people kind of clung to that yeah. identity and also mm-hmm. the fact that people needed a sense of for all the things that we just talked about and ha- being able to transport yourself away for a while or mm-hmm. um, have a sense of control it's like all those yes. kind of be able to speak your own language be able to tell your own stories and play your own music or things that you can control in, yeah. a, in a way much more so than what's going on when there's kind of mayhem happening all around when yeah I mean when there's mayhem and, 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 and you know I think as well that um, you know just from what I've heard and stuff like that you know it was just uh, you know everything some you know certainly living in in, in, in central Belfast and that like I'm sure people probably lived every day like it could be their fucking last you know and uh, you know so when when people did things they did it a hundred percent you know there was no Ash will do it tomorrow because fucking tomorrow I can come <laughs> you know yeah. you know uh, that, that line <laughs> they say that you can get used to the war but that doesn't mean that the war is not yeah that's it's <laughs> very true yeah yeah here so there you go how long have you been talking for I don't probably a long time I'd say a good hour and a half there I've got to this here um, thanks very much for uh, listen no problem the chat. it's been great yeah, no, um, thank you. Thanks for coming here. Yeah. And here, if you want, I, I'll give you a wee, a wee tour around. I'd love a tour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, f- sorry, first of all, I forgot to ask you, how can people get uh, your books? Oh, yes. Uh, okay, well, if people want to copy the book, um, you can get them in any, any major bookshops. Um, they're available on the internet. If you want to get them through myself, just send me an email. Uh, it's uh, stevelally6 at gmail.com. And I will happily. Uh, e- 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 uh, e- uh, sell you a book um, they're sterling they're quite they're quite pricey they're uh, 18 sterling and then euro is 20 but if you buy a copy for me I shall sign it for you <laughs> and my wife will sign it for you as well and uh, I'll even do you a little drawing of one of the Shida you know so there you go beautiful well um, thanks very much and uh, maybe we'll have time to go and see a fairy tree yeah, of course. Oh, brilliant. That's absolutely. Cool. I'm. I, I absolutely. Yeah. I'm just. There's actually a fantastic fairy tree not far from here. I'm, but I'm going to ask Paula which boherine I have to take. <laughs> uh, so if, if you want to come with me, yes, let's do it. Thank you. Welcome to the storytelling section of the Rebel Matters podcast. If you've been listening to the episodes before this, then you know that the book that we're reading together at the minute is Boy Tales of Childhood by Roald Dahl. And 
if you want to go back to the start of the book, you can go to episode 52 and then skip to the end of the episode after the outro music. And you can hear the first couple of chapters and then every subsequent episode has got a chapter or two in it. And it's definitely, after turning into one of my favourite things about doing the podcast, is just sitting here uh, chilling out, reading a story. And it's the first time I've read this book as well, so we're kind of reading it together. This week's chapter is called A Drive in the Motor Car. Somehow or other, I got through the first term at St Peter's. And towards the end of December, my mother came over on the paddle boat to take me and my trunk home for the Christmas holidays. Oh, the bliss and the wonder of being with the family once again after all those weeks of fierce discipline. Unless you've been to a boarding school you're, when you're very young, it's absolutely impossible to appreciate the delights of living at home. It's almost worth going away because it's so lovely coming back. I could hardly believe that I didn't have to wash in cold water in the mornings or keep silent in the corridors or say sir to every grown-up man I met or use a chamber pot in the bedroom or get flicked with wet towels while naked in the changing room or eat porridge for breakfast that seemed to be full of little round lumpy grey sheep's droppings or walk all day long in perpetual fear of the long yellow cane that lay on top of the corner cupboard in the headmaster's study. The weather was exceptionally mild that Christmas holiday And one amazing morning, our whole family got ready to go for our first drive in the first motor car we ever owned. This new motor car was an enormous long black French automobile called a Didion Bouton, which had a canvas roof that folded back. The driver was to be that 12 years older than me, half-sister, now aged 21, who had recently had her appendix removed. She had received two full hour lessons in driving from the man who delivered the car and in that enlightened year of 1925, this was considered quite sufficient. Nobody had to take a driving test. You were your own judge of competence and as soon as you felt you were ready to go, off you jolly well went. As we all climbed into the car, our excitement was so intense that we could hardly bear it. How fast will it go, we cried out. Will it do 50 miles an hour? It'll do 60, the ancient sister answered. Her tone was so confident and cocky, it should have scared us to death, but it didn't. Oh, let's make it do 60, we shouted. Will you promise to take us up, take it up to 60? We shall probably go faster than that, the sister announced, pulling on her driving gloves and tying a scarf over her head in the approved driving fashion of the period. The canvas hood had been folded back because of the mild weather, converting the car into a magnificent open tourer. Up front, there were three bodies in all. The driver behind the wheel, my half-brother, aged 18, and one of my sisters, aged 12. In the back seat, there were four more of us. My mother, aged 40, two small sisters, aged 8 and 5, and myself, aged 9. Our machine possessed one very special feature, which I don't think you see on the cars of today. This was a second windscreen in the back, solely to keep the breeze off the faces of the backseat passengers when the hood was down. It had a long centre section and two little end sections that could be angled backwards to deflect the wind. We were all quivering with fear and joy as the driver let out the clutch and the great long black automobile leaned forward and stole into motion. Are you sure you know how to do it? We shouted. Do you know where the brakes are? Be quiet, snapped the ancient half-sister, or the ancient sister. I've got to concentrate. Down the drive we went and out into the village of Landaff itself. Fortunately, there were very few vehicles on the roads in those days, 
Occasionally, you've met a small truck or a delivery van, and now and again a private car. But the danger of colliding with anything else was fairly remote, so long as you kept the car on the road. The splendid black tourer crept slowly through the village, with the driver pressing the rubber bulb of the horn every time we passed a human being, whether it was the butcher boy on his bicycle or just a pedestrian strolling the pavement. Soon we were entering a countryside of green fields and high hedges with not a soul in sight. You didn't think I could do it, did you? cried the ancient sister, turning around and grinning at us all. Now you keep your eyes on the road, my mother said nervously. Go faster, we shouted. Go on, make her go faster. Put your foot down. We're only doing 15 miles an hour. Spurred on by our shouts and taunts, the ancient sister began to increase the speed. The engine roared and the body vibrated. The driver was clutching the steering wheel as though it were the hair of a drowning man and we all watched the speedometer needle creeping up to 20, then 25, then 30. We were probably doing about 35 miles an hour when we came suddenly to a sharpish bend in the road. The ancient sister, never having been faced with a situation like this before, shouted help and slammed on the brakes and swung the wheel wildly around. The rear wheels locked and went into a fierce sideways skid and then, with a marvellous crunch of mudguards and metal, we went crashing into the hedge. The front passengers all shot through the front windscreen and the back passengers all shot through the back windscreen. Glass, there was no triplex then, flew in all directions and so did we. My brother and one sister landed on the bonnet of the car. Someone else was catapulted out onto the road and at least one small sister landed in the middle of the Hawthorne Hedge. But miraculously, nobody was hurt very much except me. My nose had been cut almost clean off my face and as I went through the rear windscreen and now it was hanging... my Sorry, my nose had been cut almost clean off my face as I went through the rear windscreen and now it was hanging on only by a single small thread of skin. My mother disentangled herself from the scrimmage and grabbed the handkerchief from her purse. She clasped the dangling nose back into place fast and held it there. Not a cottage or a person was in sight, let alone a telephone. Some kind of bird started twittering in a tree further down the road. Otherwise, it was all silent. My mother was bending over me in the rear seat and saying, Lean back and keep your head still. To that ancient sister, she said, Can you get this thing going again? The sister pressed the starter and to everyone's surprise the engine fired. Back it out of the hedge, my mother said, and hurry. The sister had trouble finding reverse gear. The cogs were grinding against one another with a fearful noise of tearing metal. I've never actually driven it backwards, she admitted at last. Everyone, with the exception of the driver, my mother and me, was out of the car and standing on the road. The noise of the gear wheels grinding against each other was terrible. It sounded as though a lawnmower was being driven over hard rocks. The ancient sister was using bad words and going crimson in the face. But then my brother leaned his head over the driver's door and said, Don't you have to put your foot on the clutch? The harassed driver depressed the clutch pedal and the gears meshed, and one second later the great black beast leapt backwards out of the hedge and careered across the road into the hedge on the other side. Try to keep cool, my mother said. Go forward slowly. At last, the shattered motor car was driven out of the second hedge and stood sideways across the road, blocking the highway. A man with a horse and a cart now appeared on the scene, and the man dismounted from his cart and walked across to our car and leaned over the rear door. 
He had a big drooping moustache and he wore a small black bowler hat. You're in a fair old mess here, aren't you? He said to my mother. Can you drive a motor car, my mother asked him. Nope, he said, and you're blocking up the old road. I've got a thousand fresh lead, lead hegs in this cart and I want to get them to the market before noon. Get out of the way, my mother told him. Can you see there's a child in here who's badly injured? One thousand fresh lead hags, the man repeated, staring straight at my mother's hand and the blood-soaked handkerchief and the blood running down her wrist. And if I don't get them to market by noon today, I won't be able to sell them till next week. Then they won't be fresh lead anymore, will they? I'll be stuck with one thousand stale old eggs and no- that nobody wants. I hope they all go rotten, my mother said. Now back that cart out of our way this instant. And to the children standing on the road, she cried out, Jump back into the car. We're going to the doctor. There's glass all over the seats, they shouted. Never mind the glass, my mother said. We've got to get this boy to the doctor fast. The passengers crawled back into the car. The man with the horse and the cart backed off to a safe distance. The ancient sister managed to straighten the vehicle and get it pointed in the right direction. And then, at last, the once magnificent automobile tottered down the highway and headed for Dr Dunbar's surgery in Cathedral Road, Cardiff. I've never driven in a city, the ancient and trembling sister announced. You're about to do so, my mother said. Keep going. Proceeding at no more than four miles an hour all the way, we finally made it to Dr Dunbar's house. I was hustled out of the car and in through the front door with my mother still holding the bloodstained handkerchief firmly over my wobbling nose. Good heavens, cried Dr Dunbar. It's been cut clean off. It hurts, I moaned. He can't go around without a nose for the rest of his life, the doctor said to my mother. It looks as though he may have to, my mother said. Nonsense, the doctor told her. I shall sew it on again. Can you do that? My mother asked him. I can try, he answered. I shall tape it on tight for now, and I'll be up at your house with my assistant within the hour. Huge strips of sticking plaster were strapped across my face to hold the nose in position. Then I was led back into the car, and we crawled two miles home to Landoff. About an hour later, I found myself lying upon that same nursery table that my ancient sister had occupied some months before for, a, for her appendix operation. Strong hands held me down while a mask stuffed with cotton wool was clamped over my face. I saw a hand above me holding a bottle with white liquid in it and the liquid was being poured onto the cotton wool inside the mask. Once again, I smelled the sickly stench of chloroform and ether and a voice was saying, breathe deeply, take some nice deep breaths. I fought fiercely to get off that table but my shoulders were pinned down by the full weight of a large man. The hand that was holding the bottle above my face kept tilting it further and further forward and the white liquid dripped and dripped onto the cotton wool. Blood red circles began to appear before my eyes and the circles started to spin round and round until they made a scarlet whirlpool with a deep black hole in the centre. And miles away, the distant voice was saying, that's a good boy. We're nearly there now. We're nearly there. Just close your eyes and go to sleep. I woke up in my own bed with my anxious mother sitting beside me, holding my hand. I didn't think you were ever going to come around, she said. You've been asleep for more than eight hours. Did Dr Dunbar sew my nose back on again? I asked her. Yes, she said. Will it stay on? He says it will. How do you feel, my darling? Sick, I said. After I vomited into a small basin, I felt a little better. Look under your pillow, my mother said, smiling. 
I turned and lifted a corner of my pillow, and underneath it, on the snow-white sheet, there lay a beautiful golden sovereign with the head of King George V on its uppermost side. That's for being brave, my mother said. You did very well. I'm proud of you. <laughs>